Welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast, episode 42, Underworld, in which a new type of tomb appears in the funerary landscape of Egypt, and one of the most notable rulers ever to grace the throne of the two lands begins his reign. This episode is brought to you by Pat, Bruce, and Miguel, who generously donated to the podcast over the holiday period. Thanks, folks. Enjoy. The year is approximately 1880 BCE, and a new ruler has recently taken the throne. His name is Ka Kaure, which translates to the Kars of Re appear in glory. Known more generally as Senusaret III, he is possibly the most accomplished of the 12th dynasty rulers, and one of Egypt's most famous kings. In a book published in 2006, Egyptologist Wolfram Grajetsky, who is perhaps one of the most knowledgeable scholars of Middle Kingdom history, described Kakaure Senusaret III thus, In the chain of remarkable rulers of the 12th dynasty, Senusaret III is perhaps the most famous. There are many changes in life, art, and culture under this king, although it is not known whether these changes were directly influenced by the ruler himself, whatever the specific reasons. Nevertheless, his reign marks the beginning of the late Middle Kingdom, and later generations treated him as one of the most important kings of ancient Egypt. End quote. In terms of political, economic, military, and literary achievement, the two or three decades of Senusaret III's reign are unparalleled in the story we have told so far. This reign is absolutely packed with significant affairs, a wealth of information and records, and some of Egypt's most famous stories and tales. It bore a legacy that was to last over a thousand years, to the time of the Greek writer Herodotus. Writing in the mid-5th century BCE, Herodotus remembered Senusaret as a conqueror who swept across Asia and right into Europe. For those of you familiar with classical writers, you'll know that for all he is called the father of history, Herodotus was much closer to a travel documentarian. But it seems that, as the cultural legacy of Senusaret's reign became apparent, the reputation of the king grew in the popular imagination. So maybe by the time Herodotus arrived, the king was remembered as a conqueror who strode far and wide across the area. We do know that Senusaret III was an accomplished military leader, and I will cover his wars in the next episode. For now, let us focus on the accession to power and the most noteworthy aspects of his public representation. This, I think, is the best way to introduce one of the most accomplished kings of our podcast so far. Senusaret was born to the King Kakepere Senusaret II and his royal wife, Kenemet Neferhedjet I. At least, this is the general consensus. There is no explicit proof that he is the son of that king. But in the absence of other records, it's the one we have to go with. On the plus side, it is very likely that his mother was Kenemet Neferhedjet, as a statue of this woman was erected in Senusaret's tomb as a memorial. Assuming the queen did not have any fruitful affairs, the chances that Senusaret was the natural son of his royal predecessor are fairly good. His wives included his half-sister, Sat Hathor Iyunet, whose beautiful diadem and jewellery 
were discovered in her tomb at Lahun. We saw these last episode. There was also Meret Seeger, Kenemet Neferhedjet II, and Neferhenut, of whom we know very little. These four marriages together produced at least five daughters, plus several more anonymous girls who were buried in sarcophagi alongside their sisters. It is one of the interesting traits of the Egyptian royal family that the children are given very little public recognition or visibility. Until the mid-5th dynasty, royal sons had filled important administrative positions, but after Nyusere allowed non-royals to attain high office, royal children become much harder to document with certainty. The fact that these princesses were buried anonymously is not necessarily indicative of misogyny. In the 12th dynasty, we actually know more about the royal daughters than we do the sons. We know of one, at most two, boy children for any single king, whereas each generation of the family tree includes up to seven or eight girls. Sanusaret seems to have been something of a family man. With many wives, many daughters, and at least one son, his household was quickly established, and the dynasty continued its run of good breeding. With the coronation completed, and one or more wives at his side, the king's thoughts turned to his burial. He would mimic his predecessors, and construct a pyramid, this time at Dashur, near the tomb of Nub Kaure, Amenemhat II. The complex was a large one, with several subsidiary pyramids built for the royal woman, essentially creating a family burial ground around the tomb of Senusaret. Like the tomb of his father, Senusaret II, the new king's monument would be a pyramid constructed of mud brick, encased in fine white limestone. Beneath the foundations, an elaborate sarcophagus of red granite was placed in a small burial chamber, which connected to the surface via a shaft laid west of the pyramid itself. So, like his father and grandfather, Senusaret III made special effort to separate his pyramid from the entrance to his tomb. Well, I say like his father and grandfather, but Kakaure Senusaret III actually went much further than these two kings. You see, many Egyptologists are now convinced that the Dashur pyramid was never actually used for the king's burial. The truth, it seems, is that he established a hidden tomb far to the south at one of Egypt's most ancient and sacred communities the region of Abydos. An archaeological excavation has been ongoing at Abydos since 1994, led by the University of Pennsylvania Museum and its head researcher, Professor Joseph Wegner. Wegner and his colleagues have been exploring the Middle Kingdom sections of the Abydos Cemetery, and since 2004 have devoted special attention to an enormous tomb secreted at the foot of a mountain known to the ancients as the Mountain of Anubis. Here, across some 800 square metres, is the true burial place of Senusaret III. It is the first royal tomb built at Abydos since the first and second dynasties, all those years and episodes ago. It is also one of the largest subterranean tombs in all of Egypt, surpassing even the great tombs of the Valley of the Kings for sheer size. The project must have been mammoth, and taken a great deal of Kakaure's attention over the years. But why bother? 
when he was already constructing a significant pyramid complex at Dashur. The answer, as you may have guessed, lies in the religious cult that by this point was dominating royal funerary practices, the cult of Osiris. Ka Kaure's father had taken the significant step of arranging for a burial chamber in his pyramid to be surrounded by a corridor that went around each side of the burial chamber and made it into a sort of artificial island underneath the pyramid. The shape of this design bore great significance for the regeneration of the king in his eternal form as Osiris, and the tomb of Senusaret II marked, until that point, the culmination of such ideas. Senusaret III took it a step further, and actually relocated his burial to the home of Osiris's cult. He then expanded the faux island built for his father, and made what could be a full-fledged reconstruction of the underworld. This was an early precursor to a pattern of tomb building that would become commonplace during the New Kingdom, but one that Professor Wegner is confident in proposing. For one thing, there is the tomb's depth. It goes a full 40 metres underneath the desert surface, making it the deepest tomb constructed in the Middle Kingdom. On a symbolic level, this represents the journey down into the deepest underworld, Then there is its internal architecture. The first section of the tomb is walled in white limestone, which Wegner holds to be a symbolic representation of the burial of Osiris. Osiris is always depicted wrapped in a pristine white burial shroud of the finest linen, so you can sort of see how white limestone might mimic this. The second section of the tomb is dressed in red quartzite, which would have had to come a considerable distance from quarries in southern Egypt, near Elephantine. Why bring that all this way? Well, it's very pretty, but the coloration may relate to solar mythology. This idea is strengthened by the fact that the second section of the tomb lies directly beneath the peak of a huge rock outcropping that forms, you guessed it, a natural pyramid. Yes, the tomb of Kakaore at Abydos lies directly beneath a peak that forms a pyramid shape. When viewed from the Nile, the outcropping stands tall and proud, essentially giving the king his monument without the need for massive construction. It is an amazing project, which would not be replicated until the early 18th dynasty, when subterranean hidden tombs became the norm. To put a final touch of intrigue into the tomb's construction, Professor Wegner and his team realised that the walls and buildings above the tomb on the desert surface were not intended to be part of the superstructure. In other words, when the ancients completed their work and the king was buried within, the walls were dismantled and the tomb was covered over with sand. So when the tomb was completed, it was intentionally buried and all trace of its location removed from the surface. This makes it the most intentionally secretive tomb of the 12th dynasty. With work proceeding on two tombs at once, Kakaure could be assured that his soul would be protected after death. But to ensure its sustenance and provisioning, 
he required a mortuary temple, which could house his statues and receive his offerings. This temple was erected at Abydos, just east of the hidden tomb. It was named Nefer Ka, or Beautiful is the Ka, referring to Sinusaret's Ka, or spirit. In this temple, priests would worship statues of Ka Kaore, their offerings provided by a special royal decree, which allowed for them to provide food, beer, and linen at government cost. Such goods would be offered to the king's statues, symbolically consumed by his soul, and then dispersed among the temple employees according to their rank. These goods were provided locally, and in great quantities. A workshop next to the temple, called a shena, was responsible for the production of bread, beer, the collection of vegetables, poultry, beef, fruit, milk, sweets, incense, oils, and even wine. It seems that no expense was spared. The king would ensure his statues were well provided for. And what beautiful statues they were. The reign of Kakaure Senusaret III is a very significant time for Egyptian art. Statues were erected up and down the country, many of them life-size, and some reaching colossal proportions. The statues depict Senusaret with the taut stomach, broad shoulders, and muscular pectorals of the ideal male physique. In this way, his body remained ageless, a picture of perfection for all eternity. But the face, ah, the face is a different story. In a rather innovative move, the statues of Senusaret III display none of the traditionally serene, idealized features. Instead, his features are boldly individualistic, with deep-set eyes and a severe, downward-curving mouth. One might call him dour or morose. Certainly he shows none of the usual passivity or self-satisfaction of earlier statues. His is the face of a pensive, thoughtful ruler. He has age lines to either side of his nose and mouth, and a strong, prominent chin. Large ears and high eyebrows give him quite a distinct look. And the face of Senusaret III is regarded as one of the most instantly recognizable in Egyptian art. After some rather infamous people we will meet in due course. It's a shame that no texts survive to describe the public image of the king, which might give us a clue to understanding what Sinusaret was trying to achieve with this new realism. He appears careworn, even exhausted, and some scholars think this imagery may reflect a new kind of power, built around the idea of service and benevolence. This is quite possible, and it would fit with some of the literary tropes that we will encounter in the next episodes. But other scholars suggest that this is the face of a severe, even ruthless king. This is equally possible, given the king's military reputation, and his willingness to push the country's resources towards building no less than two grandiose monuments for his own burial. Perhaps the best we can say from such imagery is that Kakaore Senusaret III was complicated. Certainly, as we will see next episode, this is by no means a bad thing. Join us soon for episode 43, in which the king launches a bold revival of philosophical ideals, particularly among his courtiers, and then stamps out the growing seeds 
of an independent nobility. 